Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air. This podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self-care solutions, who seek expert advice, and who want news about healthy aging and how to create well-home design in our forever homes. I'm Sherry Snelling, a corporate gerontologist, author, and educator, a TV interviewer, host, and news commentator. I'm joining you from Southern California, where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore the many ways to help you on your caregiving journey and to lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. So hello, everybody, and welcome back to Caregiving Club On Air. This is our Thanksgiving episode, so I'm really excited to dive into some things that we're going to be thinking about through the holidays. And I'm also really thrilled with our expert guest for this episode. It is Professor Charles Spence, who is a world-renowned gastrophysicist, and he has been doing a lot of research out of the University of Oxford over in London, England, and he's going to talk to us about musical menus and how, you know, our five senses, but particularly sound and music really can change the way that we taste and smell and enjoy our food and our meals. That's really fascinating. So stay tuned for that interview coming up. And then of course, in caregiver wellness news, since it's still National Family Caregiver Month this November, I'm going to touch upon a little bit more of the supports and services that are out there to really support you as a family caregiver, where you can find different help, and uh, what to think about. We're also going to talk a little bit about as families come together for the holidays, how do we have more empathy? How do we really understand what maybe our older loved ones are going through? And then how does that help us have these family conversations and, and make certain plans that we know is so important in family caregiving to plan ahead? And in our well home design news, well, I'm going to bring you one of the latest trends that we're seeing from a lot of the different home designer shows and magazines around 2023 trends. And guess what? It has something to do with me time. And then, of course, we're going to end our episode with our me time monday wellness hack and since it's our thanksgiving episode we have our gratitude gravy recipe for you which is all about building stronger emotional health particularly through the holidays so with that let's dive into our caregiver wellness news November is National Family Caregiver Month and by the way that is a presidential proclamation every president every year in November proclaims that month as being National Family Caregiver Month. It also then recognizes funding that comes from the federal government through the administration of community living, which is part of the Department of Health and Human Services. And that provides funding for things like the National Family Caregiver Support Program, which I'll have a link on the episode guide page to those services that you can tap into and find and get support. They also administer through the government something called the Elder Care Locator. So that's eldercare.gov.gov. And this is a great resource because it works with U.S. Aging, which is the national organization that oversees all of the area agencies on aging across the country. So they're in just about, I think, every county certainly every state, but multiple counties throughout many states. And you can find the local resources like meal delivery, transportation services, in-home support and in-home care, and uh, a lot of other things that relate to our older loved ones that you can get help with. And they'll help connect you to either whatever government programs may exist that you might be qualified or eligible for, your loved one is eligible for, or also some other services that may be out of pocket, but they can certainly kind of help guide you to that. And we're going to talk about some other supports and services, but let me dive into some statistics because one of the things that I hear when I do a lot of my talks across the country and I do a lot of workshops and webinars, a lot of family caregivers express this feeling of being all alone in their caregiving journey. And I think one of the most important things when we become caregivers is to recognize that we are not alone. We may feel that way and we have to really kind of dig into the why we might be feeling alone because we might be surrounded. We might have siblings. We might have a spouse or partner. We might have older children. We certainly have friends or coworkers or whomever. 
And so there are a lot of people around you that care about you. I think one of the reasons why we feel alone or we express this as caregivers is because we don't always share our caregiving lives, particularly if it's an older loved one. Maybe that older loved one has Alzheimer's and they've said to you, I don't want anyone to know. So you feel almost if you're betraying them, if you start to connect and share this is what you're going through. This is what you see your mother or your dad going through. And, you know, you don't know what to do or where to turn, you know, you just don't even have those conversations. And so that kind of isolates us as caregivers. And unfortunately, what we know from social isolation is not only does it impact our health, and there's a lot of studies now around social isolation and loneliness. We know there's a famous study that said that if you're chronically lonely, it is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So we know that it can impact our health, but it also doesn't allow us to find really great resources and great tips and things that other people may have experienced. Because one of the things I think is fascinating is that when you do step off the ledge a little bit and say, yeah, I'm in a caregiving situation, you know, for my grandparent or for my in-laws or whatever it is, all of a sudden everybody says, oh yeah, I went through that last year. So there's 53 million caregivers in the U.S. That's a lot of people. And I think once we start to talk about it a little bit more, share our experiences, share our struggles and our challenges, not only will that help us individually, but it'll also help us kind of remove a little bit of these stigmas and this feeling of being all alone. So I threw a stat out, out at you. 53 million Americans in the U.S. are caregiving. We know that the vast majority of those are caregiving for, again, an older loved one. It could be a favorite aunt or uncle. It could be a parent, in-laws, grandparents. We also find as, as we age, we will be caring for perhaps a spouse or partner or a sibling. So there's a lot of different ways we walk into these caregiving roles. And one of the things I'm seeing right now in terms of this term caregiver, and very much so in the workplace with employers, caregiver is now starting to define anyone who's caring for a loved one. So that means it could be your child. It could be a special needs child. It could be, again, a spouse or a partner. So, you know, this broader definition, I think in some ways is good because I think it recognizes that throughout our lives, no matter what age or stage we may be in, we probably are going to be caring for someone. And the person that we care for maybe changes depending on, again, what age or stage we might be in. But it also recognizes, I think, this broader care economy that we talk about so much and what policymakers, for instance, in Washington, D.C. are very concerned about is how do we support this vast volunteer army of caregivers out there and give them the services and the supports that they need. Just a couple other quick stats. I mentioned that very often we apply that word caregiver to mean we're caring for older parents. We know that there's also 18-year-olds who are caring for parents or grandparents. We know that there are 70-year-olds who are caring for a 90-year-old mother or father. It's not applicable to just one age because it can happen at any time. Now, the vast majority of caregivers are typically kind of in their 40s and 50s. We typically call these the sandwich generation because you probably also so maybe have children that you're still caring for or raising or who may be under your roof and you're taking care of financially, even if they've come back maybe from college and haven't yet found a job. And then simultaneously, you're also then caring for an older generation loved one. So that's where you're sandwiched in the middle. We also know 25% of millennials right now, 24% or so, are engaged in a caregiving role, typically more so for a parent or a grandparent. We know 8 million of you are caring for a loved one long distance. That means more than two hours away. And there are real challenges when it comes to trying to care across that vast difference. If you live... Let's say you live in California and your loved one, your older parents live in Florida. It becomes a lot tougher to really bridge that gap because the only time you may be seeing each other is maybe during holidays, like we are right around the corner for all of us with Thanksgiving and the other holidays that are coming up. So we may only see each other a handful of times during the year. So you don't see the daily challenges or maybe even the daily declines that we have to be recognizing and aware of in order to understand, okay, maybe my parent or loved one is going to need a little bit more help. 
the other thing that's really interesting, so by the way, I'm a huge fan of Yellowstone and the season five premiere was last night. So if I'm a little blurry eyed, it's because I stayed up a little bit late because I was also working on this podcast. But what was really interesting about the season premiere is it really kind of reflected what happens in our rural communities. There was a scene where one of the characters was pregnant and she was three weeks early, started having contractions. And so she had to get to the hospital. Well, in a rural area, she was 40 miles away from the nearest hospital. And that is a very real reality for our loved ones who live in some of these rural communities where the services are not as accessible. It's not like many of us who live in the cities and you can get that ambulance there right away and and all of those things. So there's a lot of special things we need to think about and also some groups that really focus on that rural older and aging loved ones and how we can help our caregivers who may be caring for someone who are in some of those rural communities. So again, I'll have all of these great resources on our episode guide page. And then as I mentioned, our employers, you know, always think about your employer as one of the places you should turn to maybe find out if there are some services or benefits that might help you. A lot of us don't think about our employers putting these things in place. And even though we may be getting emails or there may be things from HR, if you're not in a caregiving situation right now, you kind of just tune those emails out. It's only when you're in the situation that you go, oh, okay, that's right. Was there something? So again, Having the conversations with colleagues at work will help because a lot of your colleagues have probably gone through or are going through right now caregiving situations. But remember that one in six employees is caring for an older loved one right now. That's a pretty good percentage. And it's only going to grow as we have more and more older loved ones who are living longer. We've talked about longevity. We have many people now living into their 90s and even 100s, but that doesn't mean that all of those years are spent in good health. So they're going to need some extra care, some extra support and services. And that's obviously where we come in and become caregivers for them. A couple other things I just want to do a shout out to. The National Alliance for Caregiving just launched a phone line. And again, I'll have all these links on the episode guide page, but it's to have caregivers tell their stories and also also to provide kind of that sympathetic ear and that connection for more of that emotional health side that I was talking about with caregivers, where we tend to put ourselves a little bit maybe in isolation, or we feel lonely, or we feel overwhelmed. Sometimes we just need someone to talk to. It's not only about finding good services, that's kind of probably job number one, but then we just need somebody to listen. And sometimes, you know, friends or family are not as empathetic as maybe they could be. I think this is a really interesting mental health project. So I'll have that link on the episode guide page. And by the way, they have the phone, the people who will be conversing with you in English, Spanish, and Mandarin, Chinese. So really thinking about the different populations out there. And then there's different, as I mentioned, there's the elder care locators, so eldercare.gov. They can find you local resources in the communities. Another great organization I really love is the Caregiver Action Network. They really connect caregivers with each other. You can go onto their website, which is caregiveraction.org. You can find videos of other caregivers who just kind of tell their story. You can tell your story. You can get engaged with them, but they also have really great resources. They have toolkits, they have checklists. They just do a lot of really great work. So I would definitely put them on your list as something to look into as a resource. I also mentioned the National Family Caregiver Support Program. That's through the government. I'm going to have that link so you can check that out. And your employers, I said. So let's segue now into the holidays and Thanksgiving coming up, which is when, you know, typically most families are getting together. And by the way, really great episode last year. So in our season one, it was episode three, and it was with Donna Benton, and she runs the USC Family Caregiver Support Center. And she talked to us about how do we have these conversations as families? How do we go into the discussions around long-term care or even end-of-life type wishes. So I'm not going to repeat what Donna said. I'd rather have you go hear it directly from her. So check out that episode if you're looking for those tips. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to just really quickly give you a couple of tips to think about. Now, I said we're gathering as families, but that may not be the right time to have the conversation. You know, what we want to do is maybe be 
observing a little bit more. So it all depends on our families. We're all very unique in that. Sometimes it would be the right time for all the siblings are there, you know, all the other family members are connected. Maybe it is the right time to have a conversation with mom or dad or whomever. But in other situations, you may not want to bring the celebration down and, and have that serious note. So you'll take your notes from the holidays, be observant, and then maybe set up a different time to have that conversation. But a lot of people ask me, when should I have this conversation with my parents? And here's the rule that we use in gerontology. We say if you're age 40 or if your parent is age 70, you should be starting to have these conversations. And here's the reason why. One is it's not a one and done conversation. It's probably going to be a series of conversations over a certain period of time. It also makes it easier when you kind of spread things out. You can start with some of the basics and then you can kind of get into a little bit more of the details later on or ask follow-up questions. So it's really important though to start early when your loved one can express what they want, what they're thinking about, and you have time to plan. I think one of the biggest things that we see that happens with family caregivers is the financial impact. We don't recognize the out-of-pocket costs. We don't realize that Medicare does not cover everything. Social Security is not going to take care of everything. And if our loved one has enough savings, the cost of care is very, very expensive as we age. You know, things like assisted living or memory care or bringing in home health care into the home. It's all very, very expensive and it's all out of pocket. It's not covered. Now, if your loved one has a long-term care insurance plan, okay, that's maybe one of the questions you need to ask. You find that out. But anyway, it just... Starting these conversations a little earlier, I think will make it a little better for all of us because it gives us enough time to plan, build up the financial resources around that. And also we don't feel like, oh my gosh, I've got 20 things I've got to find out today, or I've never had the conversation with my loved one. And now I have no idea where to look for the paperwork or what they were thinking. And this is where we see a lot of family conflicts start to happen when that conversation has not happened. And then the members that are going to be engaged, you know, the family members haven't heard it from the loved one. Now, all of a sudden, they all have different opinions on what maybe should happen. And mom or dad can't speak for themselves. So it's just a really good idea to start these conversations a little earlier. And, you know, as I said, we're all living longer. We want to avoid all of this family conflict. We want to give ourselves time to plan ahead financially. And also, if we're going to make decisions like maybe leaving the workforce, you know, a lot of people through the great resignation, we heard a lot of people say, well, I'm doing this because I do want to be there for my parent, you know, in the same way I wanted to be there for my kids when they were really little and just growing up and I took time off work in the same way. I kind of want to maybe take some time off work and be there for mom or dad or my grandparents who raised me or whatever it happens to be. And all of these choices, again, are very personal. There is no right way or wrong way. But when you make a decision like that, then you need to really think through, okay, so, uh, you know, it's not just my salary. I'm going to be walking away from it, maybe accumulating those social security and medical care benefits that our employers pay half of. And that's what we get later in life to help ourselves out. We may not get the annual bonus. We may not have the any kind of profit sharing or pension or 401k contributions and all that. So all of that really, we need to kind of think that through. And, you know, right now finance is top of mind for every family. It's so tough out there. And so having these conversations is really important. So we really understand the financial picture and what what we're looking at. In some instances, I've talked to a lot of caregivers who said, I did talk to mom and dad and they didn't have enough savings, which by the way, is very true of the boomer population. We, I'm a boomer and we just really weren't good at saving, particularly not also understanding the escalating healthcare costs. Nobody could have foreseen that. I wish we all had a crystal ball for that. But so we may not have enough savings and this is going to put tremendous financial impact on the generation caring for us. And so knowing that, that might then determine your decision. You may say, I can't afford to leave work because I've got to have this extra funding for out-of-pocket costs for mom or dad. Now, you know, when we have these conversations, I also just want to quickly touch upon something I do in my workshops. And I do a webinar on how to have these conversations within families. There's a lot of kind of psychology built around it and, you know, communication skills and all that. But I wanted to share one thing with you. And this is called what I call the empathy exercise. And what it really does, and it's really an interesting exercise if you really commit to it, it's really stepping into somebody else's shoes, which is tough to do because 
obviously we're, we don't understand our loved one's lives. We don't understand where they're at. So I wanted to give you a few clues into how to think about this. So first of all, when we're thinking about our lives, we have a long time horizon, okay? We're still planning for the future. We're planning for vacations. We're planning for a future wedding of our children or grandchildren or, you know, whatever it is. We're looking into the future. Our older loved ones are looking backwards. They're looking back over the legacy of their life and they're saying, what was it all about? Why was I here? What am I leaving behind? So if you can kind of, again, put yourself in those shoes and think about how would you feel if that was really, you weren't looking at as much to the future and planning ahead. The other thing is our lives are so fast paced. We've got so many things going on, particularly if we're working and we're juggling family life and friends and maybe kids and all these other things that go on, but it's very fast paced and there's a lot we have to do. Our older loved ones, particularly if maybe they're in the quote unquote retirement years, by the way, boomers never retire, just in case you were wondering, you know, we have encore careers, we have gig jobs, but we don't really retire. Again, going back to we didn't save enough money, but also because I think boomers don't ever want to just kind of sit around and watch television or or whatever it is. So our lives are slowing down, right? As you get older, your your pace of life slows down. You might have less harried things and and maybe a lot less balls you have to juggle. So we're a little bit more patient and we want patience from the people we're dealing with. We don't want to be seen as like, I've just got to check you off my list and get going. That's really tough. The patience part, I think, is tough for family caregivers. The other thing is the backwards reflection. So again, we're looking forward to things. Our loved ones are looking back over what their lives meant. Also, being in control. What's really interesting is, you know, some people are more control freaks than others. I would put myself probably in that category, you know, being very much type A personality. But what happens as we age is, you know, our bodies start to rebel, our eyesight starts going, our hearing starts going, our joints start aching. It's harder to maintain, you know, weight, whether you're losing weight or gaining weight or whatever it is. But, you know, there's a little bit of a rebellion going on and we don't feel as much (laughs) that we have as much control maybe over our physical bodies. And we also realize that if we don't have our job, maybe we've left our job that we were a boss or a manager or a supervisor. Now we're just doing something else, but we don't have people that we're really kind of supervising or overseeing we're losing control. We're losing control over certain things. If you become a reminder of that loss of control by saying to mom or dad, well, you know what, mom, I just think you should do this. Even that little sentence, the way you said it, that is taking away their control because you're saying, I'm going to tell you what to do. Now, I know these are subtleties. And again, there's a lot of communication skills I go through in my workshop, but think about it in the sense of giving your parent the control. Don't take that away from them. Reframe that question a little bit. Like, what do you think we should do, mom? Or have you thought about this? Give them the control. Don't tell them what they need to do. Also, we don't have a lot of time to talk through things. Again, we're running around. We've got a million things going on. One of the things that I know is really, really precious to our older loved ones, and I saw it both with my stepdad and my dad, who I've lost over the last, you know, several years, and even my grandparents really, is taking the time to have those conversations and really listening, listening to what they want to talk about. And I know sometimes they retell the same stories, but that's okay. And giving them the floor, letting them have the mic. And I think there's a a veneration that gets lost so often in our harried lives. We don't take the time to just sit down and have those talks and listen. And we can learn a lot, by the way, about ourselves. If we listen to the family histories, we can learn a lot about our family health history, which is really important to our own health. So take the time to have those conversations. And then our older loved ones want to resolve conflicts. You know, if you've had a conflict with your parent throughout life, this is the time they want to resolve it. They know they have very little time maybe left and they don't want to leave life with this kind of sore spot in their life. And so sometimes we have to open ourselves up and be graceful and be compromising in the fact that, yes, our loved ones want to, you know, resolve this conflict that we had. And then again, we are looking at beginnings and they are looking at endings. And so if you can take a little bit from these tips and make yourself a more empathetic listener and really think about what it would be to be your parent versus who you are, which is this, you know, like I said, on the go, very busy person, I think it really helps all of us really understand how we can become better caregivers 
and may help those conversations that are tough. So if you become more of a partner and a patient listener and a support to your loved one in what they want to have done, then sometimes that opens the doors to a lot of these conversations. Now, moving on, we're going to go into our pop culture segment, which we haven't done a lot. We've done a couple, but this is one I thought was really interesting. So on Caregiving Club, we have a book lovers list of all different types of books, whether it's family Alzheimer's, you know, dealing with a loved one with Alzheimer's, whether it's wellness books, whether and self-care or financial and, and planning for longevity and all these. We have our cookbook session. And I wanted to bring up cookbooks because it's the Thanksgiving episode. So I'm going to, again, all of these cookbooks are going to be on the episode guide page, but there are really specific cookbooks out there for caregivers. So there's a cookbook for caregivers by Janet. I think it's Laidler. I'm looking at this here. Again, this will all be correct on our episode guide page. There's also the Family Caregiver Cookbook by Harriet Hodgson. There's The Power of Five, which is the Test Kitchen Cookbook by Melanie Bernstein. And then there's specific cookbooks for, for instance, the cancer diet, cooking for a cure, meals to heal, what to eat um, during cancer treatment and chemotherapy, renal diet cookbooks, and also Parkinson's, a caregiver's guide to Parkinson's diet and nutrition needs. And then for you as the family caregiver, there's two books that I would highly, highly recommend. First is The Blue Zones Kitchen, which is the cookbook that is associated with the Blue Zones program, which was all about living longer and becoming a centenarian at age 100. But it really taps into what the Mediterranean style diet, I think, is probably out of all of the things that are out there. Forget the fads, forget the cleanses. The Mediterranean style diet, if you can adopt most of the good healthy habits out of that, I would say you're on the road to better wellness for sure, because it just about every expert I talk to always points back to that, despite what fad is trending right now. The other one that I really want to point out, and by the way, we had Bonnie Kaplan on our episode. She was on season two, this season, episode four. Go back and listen to that conversation. But her book is called The Better Brain. But she talks about how our diets can control anxiety and other emotional health issues, can help with ADHD. HD can help with stress and depression. And really through micronutrients, we can really change what's chemically going on in our body that's going to affect a lot of our emotional health, not just our physical health. So those would be my two favorite books for you. And with that, speaking of cooking and meals and eating, now I have my really exciting interview with Professor Charles Spence, who is from the University of Oxford in London, England. He is a gastrophysicist. And if you don't know what that is, you're about to find out. But he's going to tell us how musical menus are really becoming the thing in how we can eat better, get our loved ones to eat better, and avoid some of the things that happen with age, like losing your taste buds and all that. So here is my interview with Professor Charles Spence. So I'm totally thrilled to have Dr. Charles Spence with us, who is a gastrophysicist at the University of Oxford and has done probably some of the best and, and most widely recognized research in the areas of our sensory perceptions and our five senses and also taste and smell and music. And so Dr. Spence, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, I want to dive right into this because you've written some wonderful research and, and different articles and worked with a lot of different organizations, and you've coined some phrases like sonic seasoning and musical menus. Tell us a little bit about some of your work and really how different music genres can affect how we perceive taste and smell. So, yes, uh, we have been researching sonic seasoning a lot over the last 15 years or so here in Oxford and with collaborators around the world. And it's the name for our finding, as shown by other people as well, I should say, that the music that we listen to, or that's playing in the background when we eat or drink, or eat and drink, can season our food. So there is certain music, certain styles of music, certain sonic qualities of instrument and tempo and roughness and loudness and uh, so on that can make foods taste sweeter. There's other sort of musical qualities that can bring out the bitterness. And now we have these kind of musical menus that allow us to say, 
if you want to bring out the spiciness of a dish or the creaminess or the saltiness, then these are the kind of musical parameters you want. And we can then either look for music that's been pre-composed for another purpose, just off the shelf, classical music or hip hop or I don't know what, and find music that has those sort of qualities of tempo, roughness and so on, and or work with composers, sound designers, music producers to actually create soundscapes specifically to bring out the taste of food. And this is uh, yeah, sort of surprising to people because you don't think, you know, when I taste something like a cup of coffee, I think that I taste it in my mouth and I don't really think that the music is having any impact on what I'm tasting. And yet through lots and lots now of laboratory research and real world research, we can show that, well, we can't turn water into wine just yet. <laughs> but what we can do is use sonic seasoning to accentuate something that is already in the tasting experience. So if I give you a cup of coffee, which, which is one of the demonstrations we often use, a cup of black coffee with a little bit of sweetness, then if I play tinkling, high-pitched music, sort of wind chime-like or high notes on the piano, then we can bring out maybe 10% extra sweetness on the palate. Whereas if I play some very low-pitched, maybe brassy music instead, then and the lower the pitch of the music, the better for this, then that really brings out the bitterness instead. And it's really nice to have people tasting something. I was just doing this in New York, in fact, last week at a, at a uh, sort of sonic seasoning dinner <laughs> on Fifth Avenue, having people drinking a, a bittersweet, in that case, it was a cocktail drink, an Amaro. But as I changed the music, you could see them, their taste experience changed in real time from one moment to the next. And people who had been sort of sceptical when they first heard about this, when they experienced it for themselves, sometimes um, amazed. And while we started out doing this, you know, for 15 years ago, in the laboratory in Oxford with one of my students who, who was interested in music and liked to bake, but had no idea what to research. So we sort of started out doing this kind of combining taste and music, never thinking it would work. And even if it did work, that no one would be interested. Over the last 15 years, it's just really exploded with more and more people around the world picking music or, or composing soundscapes and music to match the taste of specific products, mm -hmm. which might be something like... Uh, Coffee, say we worked back in 2010, I think it was, with Starbucks when they were launching a new product here in the UK and worked with a German DJ in that case to bring out, to create a kind of disco-y uh, ambient soundscape to bring out the taste of, of their coffee there. And more recently, we've been working out with everyone from airlines like British Airways on a sort of sonic seasoning menu for their long-haul flights. The idea being then you could, this is more for the sort of the pointy end of the plane, perhaps, than the back, but <laughs> that you could order something from the menu to eat. And then simply by changing the channel on the headset in your seat, you could add some sonic sweetening. You could add some music to bring out the sort of ethnicity or authenticity, say, of some Scottish salmon while listening to The Proclaimers, a famous Scottish pop group, or, or the music to you know bring out bitterness instead. I'm so fascinated by this. And I think over the last few decades, we've been learning so much more about neuroscience and how our brains work. And I personally am a lover of jazz. So I was fascinated by an article that showed that I think you could enhance the feelings that people had about food, that they would want to eat it more if jazz music was played. One question I have is, are certain genres of music pretty consistent across your research? So for instance, if the jazz enhances certain things or the high tinkling sounds you were mentioning, is it consistent or is it personalized? Is it more about that person's culture and background and choices? I think it's probably a bit of both, but there is a surprising degree of cross-cultural consistency. I mean, most of our work is done probably in the UK, often with what we call weirdos, which is sort of Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic boys and girls studying psychology. <laughs> I had not heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> but what we do try and do is then take the, the ideas and the music and then test them in different countries. So we worked in one project with a German sound designer in 2015 to create four versions of a tune. One that sounded slightly sweeter, one that sounded slightly more bitter, one more salty, one more sour, the four primary tastes. That was created in Germany. We then tested it in uh, listeners in North America, and they agreed about 77% agreed with the composer's intentions. They said, mm -hmm. yes, that's a sweet music. That must be sour. That must be salty. And that must be bitter. 
Then we took those same four soundscapes composed by the German, tested initially in North America, and then took them to India, where there's a very difference of culture, very different musical repertoire. And yet there too, they were almost as constant, they were 72% kind of consistent with the intention. So there definitely is some degree of cross-cultural consistency there. That said, I think there must also be some variation. And one might think, one of my favourite just-so stories, people might ask, well, why is it that high pitches are sweet and lower pitches are bitter? Where does that come from? Makes no sense. It's and one just-so story I have, which no one has disproved yet in the, in the t- 10 years since I proposed it, is that if you look at newborn babies, be it rats, chimpanzees or humans, at birth, if you put a sweet taste on their tongue, their tongue goes out and up as they try and lick the calories for energy for growth, put a bitter taste on a newborn baby's tongue, and the tongue will go out, ugh, out <laughs> and down to try and eject something that might be poisonous. Right. And we're all born doing that across the world. And if you think about the kind of gurgles babies will make, you'll, you'll understand why my brother would let me nowhere near his <laughs> children <laughs> yeah. without another adult present. Right. But I'm informed, you know, that the sort of gurgles that a baby will make with their tongue out and down are different in pitch right. than those in the tongue. So that's kind of universal. That would say higher pitch should be sweet across yeah. the world, across culture, and maybe across species. So I've just published a paper on what I call phytogastrophysics, which is applying this notion of, of the science, new sciences of the table, not to human choice and preference and sonic seasoning for humans, but thinking, you know, for our pets, are they influenced by sonic seasoning as well? Right. Quite possibly. They can suffer from sensory overload. They're a calming sense. So what sort of music would work best for Fido's dinner? Wait, I don't have the answer to that yet. And that's fascinating because I think it's a dog's nose has, what is it, like 60 billion different scents that it can smell compared to, I don't know what we have, a million or something, right? (laughs) So... Well, you kind of lead me into another question, which is, you know, we talk about the savanna hypothesis and the fact that, you know, we as humans started evolving two, three million years ago out on the African savanna. And I love also your work in environmental aspects of taste and music and everything. And so, you know, knowing that we have that ancient brain that reacts to certain things in those ancient environments and we correspond with that. Do you find there's certain sounds that correspond with that kind of ancient hypothesis that translates into modern music today? Are there are there any connections that say drum beating, you know, drum solos or whatever is something like that helpful when it comes to our taste buds? Another explanation for why we match sweet with high pitch and bitter with low pitch, and we match sweetness with round shapes, but we all think bitter should be angular and sour should be angular. So there are all these cross-sensory connections around. And one reason why we might put bitter taste and angular shapes and low-pitched sounds together is that they're all potentially dangerous things. Because a low-pitched sound is going to come from a big object, an elephant, a woolly mammoth, a tiger, whereas high-pitched sounds will generally come from very small birds tweeting, insects buzzing. So we should be afraid of low-pitched things that make low-pitched sounds. We should be afraid of angular things because they might hurt us. And a bit of our primitive brain, when we see something pointing towards us, immediately get scared in the amygdala. And we find you know, even today, if I were to present to you a slice of cake on a plate, but a slice of cake is pointing towards you, you don't like it as much as if it's pointing away from you. Right. And that's your ancient brain a little trace of your ancient brain's thing. And hence then you put the dangerous sound, the low-pitched big thing, the dangerous shape, the angular thing, and the bitter taste, which is potentially poisonous. You group all those things together. And the things we like, round things are kind of cuddly, safe. Sweet is a nice taste. High pitches are sort of smaller things. So those are all less threatening. We kind of put nice stuff together, unpleasant. Right. Well, it kind of corresponds to, I was doing some reading on some research around shapes, like you said, circular shapes or shell shapes, things that we see in nature, we're comforted by those types of shapes, you know, so it, it really does make sense. You recently sent me one of your research papers where you did a study among older adults. And of course, we know as we get older, we're on more medications that can inhibit our taste buds. But tell us a little bit about how you were able to enhance appetite through that particular study. So yes, we've been working a lot, a lot of the experiments we do and the fun we have is with, you know, uh, world-leading chefs in these molecular gastronomy restaurants. 
the danger is that can sound very sort of you know frivolous exclusive esoteric expensive and um, impossible to get a booking at some right. of these restaurants so <laughs> why does it apply to me who cares really all of our more recent research we've been trying to take the best of the findings things like the sonic seasoning that was first discovered and first tested out in world's leading fatback restaurant in bray and think how we can apply them to help in the real world to various problems one of those is you know sort of patients in hospital many of whom are malnourished if not anorexic when they go in but definitely whether if when they come out of hospital simply not eating enough food a very badly designed sensory environment partly perhaps around the noise at meal times and elsewise what can we do there what can we do for all of these patients who are undergoing chemotherapy treatment and who have metal mouth is there kind of a gastrophysics solution there and so um i was sort of struck in my own sort of personal case by my mother who died of uh, dementia alzheimer's three or four years ago of the last of course she lost lots of weight in the final months and you can see the only thing that she would eat was ice cream and that's very strange because she never liked ice cream you know in her earlier life so what was going on there why was it a nostalgic memory of childhood or something maybe but she grew up in the war so probably not or is it just that the elderly as we lose the sense of taste maybe the temperature cues of ice cream is all that we have left to hold on to and that's sort of pleasurable in some way maybe the mouth coating sensations but i could see it in the nursing home where my, where my mother was that it was seen as a kind of um like a childish thing to want to eat ice cream and it's very bad for you full of fat and sugar so we'll let her have it but we really shouldn't be doing that you should be eating vegetables and things and so together with um uh, a chef i work with joseph youssef in london he's able to create nutritious ice creams based on vegetables based on fuels or other sort of protein powders make them taste creamy without the fat with the right sort of molecular gastronomy device and we have this range of sort of nostalgic flavors for those 70 or 80 year olds like my mother was so we had cream of tomato soup ice cream we had prawn cocktail ice cream and a bone marrow ice cream we sort of created these things and we say this is a nutritionally good way of delivering food to those who've lost their ability to taste because of age medicine or both but does it really work and for that we were working with a care home for aged actors in the uk denville hall and they brought some very famous aged actors and some less famous ones into the chef's studio and we were able to give them these various ice creams because one of the problems we faced was that if i give you a pink ice cream your mind's immediately going to get strawberry that's what pink ice cream looks normally for most of us is but in this case it was the cream of tomato soup ice cream so how do we make sure that people know what to expect and for that we had projections of you know 1960s 1970s flock wallpaper on the table the old labels from tomato soup cans of decades gone by and together with the music of Vera Lynn wartime popular singer so using the senses then to try and trigger nostalgia we can think of that almost as another kind of sonic seasoning to set the mood to take people back to a happier time and to deliver them something that works for the altered sensory environment they find themselves in i love that it's so fascinating cuz you do talk as well about all of the senses you know and all all of those brain connections that we think about are connected in terms of of sound you know and hearing music and taste and eating and all that in terms of what you're seeing in healthcare long term care even the food systems i know restaurants for a long time have used certain genres of music but do you see this going as you said more mainstream and not just being seen as something you know that's a really interesting research study but how does it apply i'm really fascinated by the healthcare systems that are always looking for new things on how they can help older adults do you see more attention now to this yes it is definitely coming so uh, in part i think it starts some of these crazy fun ideas of start out you hear about them first in the fancy restaurants of the modernist chefs and the sample green listed world's best things and from there then they go to sort of branded content so we work a lot with um brands like the Starbucks who may offer you sonic seasoning to have with your coffee in your own home just a regular coffee for your 11s with the music so you're sort of having that experience at home and now we're starting to see unbranded content so for example there are some Italians who made this app where you can go into your local wine store scan any label with your mobile device it will read the year the vintage the grape the and then choose some music that matches they say i don't know how good the match is the algorithms but 
the idea is there. Is that an app that's out yes. there? Yeah. Oh, we want it. We want to try that app. <laughs> <laughs> and so that then makes some of this possibility of matching the music to the wine, in that case, kind of ubiquitous and not connected just to eating or drinking one product or another. Something we can do in our own homes. And we're seeing it, you know, then rolling out into cafes in Beijing. That was one cafe that played sweet music all day long, Jin Cafe in Beijing, so that they could reduce the sugar content in their drinks, but hopefully keep the taste perception the same. Because we all, you know, so when people think, well, I could have 10% more sweetness in my food without adding more sugar, (sighs) simpler by getting the music right. That's fascinating. Because we're all talking about how do we reduce sugar and salts, you know, from our diet. And, and then the other part of it for us is one of the dishes that's created the most excitement over the years was a dish called the Sound of the Sea, which sort of developed at the Fat Tech restaurant, the world's top restaurant, a dish that comes to the table looking like the seashore with sand and foam seaweed, but also with a conch shell with an MP3 player that plays the sounds of the sea with the seagulls. And that's been a, a huge success. And when it went onto the menu, the world's top restaurant in 2007, it seemed like it was kind of the world first. But then it turns out that as I looked into the archives, that back in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, in North America, in psychiatric hospitals and other places where you had patients who were quite anxious, and where there's huge amounts of noise, they were actually playing the sounds of the sea at mealtimes to help calm agitated patients, and so they would hopefully eat better. And now we're seeing a lot of, when you look at the numbers and see how loud many hospital wards are, and eating facilities in institutions. It's sort of horrendously loud, schools as well, school canteens. And when you see how much that sort of suppresses your ability to taste, how much more salt and sugar you need to add to get the same taste in a really noisy environment, you think, you know, it's not just about putting in the nice soundscapes to add sweetness without sugar, but it's also about, you know, trying to mitigate the very bad effects of of overly loud background noise in the care system, but of course, also, in so many restaurants these days, as the noise levels go up and up, that makes us spend more, drink more, drink faster. It also suppresses taste and maybe leads to less healthy, I think, food behaviours. And do we get more sensitive to things like sound as we age? I notice that the older I get, I seem much more sensitive to sounds like car engines and things like that. Is that typical? The bad news is all of our senses decline at <laughs> different rates. There's no, no way around that. But of course, we have hearing aids and glasses to make up for a loss of sight and sound. The tragic thing about smell and taste is that when they go, there's nothing to make up for it. Right. And, and, and I see these studies of you know, sort of 70 year old North America who are on medication, and most 70 year olds are on something like five to 12 medications, apparently. And when you give them a bowl of tomato soup, those without medication need like three times as much salt in their soup to get, make it taste the same as a young person. When they're on medication, it's up to 12 times as much salt. And think about the negative health consequences of that, but hypertension and so on, uh, something we really need to try and address. Mm-hmm. And any of these strategies, I think, may help, be it the, the sonic ones, but also you know, thinking a lot about we rarely eat, I guess, in an isolated, well, unfortunately, many older people are eating so many of their meals alone now. And that, again, leads into bad food behaviours, anorexia at one end, because I just don't want to eat, or eating too much because food packages don't come in the right size, or just one, right, very often. Right. And thinking about how to you know, bring that kind of commensality, that social element to dining back for those who are in care homes, living on their own, as more people are. Yeah. One last quick question for you. And thank you so much for everything you're sharing. I write and talk to a lot of family caregivers and like yourself, you took care of your mother who had dementia. I think you mentioned in your research article that you also were looking at things like the color of the plate. So red and blues would enhance, you know, so what are the tips, I guess, that you can tell us about how we should think about the presentation and the color of the plates as well as the music what would you recommend that we do? For those we are caring for? Yes, for you caring for the older older adults. With my mother, that, uh, especially for the Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, elderly patients can often find it difficult to discriminate between the food and the plate. It's very often white creamy sauces, mashed potato, white rice on a white plate. And it's just really difficult at that age and stage to make figure out which what is which. So it's really important to get the contrast there. And that's where I think the very high contrast blues and red plateware can help to make the food stand out and make it, and they have been shown in several studies now, to increase consumption. 
in care, but also in hospitals. There's one UK study where they replaced the white plates with blue plates and led to uh, it was a 30 or 300% increase in food consumed. But when you see the actual statistics of how much food, it's something like 66% of, of hospital food in the UK is returned to the kitchens untouched. Right. You know there's something completely wrong. And if you don't eat, you can't get the nutrition, you can't recover, you have more nights in hospital. And something as simple as changing the colour of the plate can really make a difference. And what about the playlist? Would you recommend that a care think about a playlist maybe and and would it be earlier memories is that the best thing to think about with your loved one i think you know that, that sort of notion of nostalgia is perhaps powerful one it's one i've also seen many of the world's top restaurants um things like the sound of the sea dish i mentioned earlier makes many people cry when they have it when was the last time you cried over seafood never never something about this dish <laughs> does and the idea is maybe that's sort of triggering positive nostalgia childhood memories of being on the beach family mm. holidays and so more and more chefs now are trying to trigger nostalgia, be it through the music or through scents, maybe trying to take you back to the childhood sweet shop. Or, um, But I think you know, music is one of the elements of the environment. It's very easy to change and worth giving thought to, probably as, as a very powerful nostalgia tool to take people back. And very often what we find in our research is the more that people like whatever they are listening to, whoever they are, the more they like what they are listening to, the more they like the taste of the food. Mm which is great yeah it's this sort of, sort of transfer effect and that and the other thing i'd i'd think is so often in the care home where my mother was that they'd show a picture this is today's menu on a printed out piece of white paper and it would be like a microwave explosion of brown <laughs> and you say no visual presentation is really important if that doesn't look delicious right and so yeah try and you know bring more color into the food bring more crunch use more texture and temperature the res- residual senses and i'm currently weighing up whether we need to think differently about uh, umami, the sort of mysterious fifth taste right. that was, you know, um, made seem very bad because of Chinese restaurant syndrome, so-called in the 70s. But now as we see the terrible health consequences of the overconsumption of salt, which is for most of us, then you know, how can we take that down and can it be through sonic seasoning or is monosodium glutamate MSG Maybe we don't like it because it's artificial and chemical, but on the other hand, if it can deliver a salty, delicious taste without so much sodium, maybe it's time to rethink, is that a, a useful direction? And I can see, you know, 20 years ago, they were talking about this flavour enhancement through MSG. And I think maybe now we're at the point where, given all the research coming out about the detrimental effects of over-salt consumption, even just having a salt shaker, those that just came out from China. And if you salted your food at the table, you knocked one and a half years off your life. Right. Wow. To 2.2 if you're a man, one and a half years for a woman. Right. Compared to those who didn't salt their food. Right. Well, and I remember reading, I grew up near Disneyland, so I live in California in the U.S., but I remember reading about Disneyland really purposely and intentionally had the smells of the caramel taffy, you mm-hmm, know, that mm-hmm. you could smell on Main Street. And that really kind of got people into this warm sense of, you know, community and as you said, nostalgia. So it's it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've just brought so much, you know, to the conversation, and I've I've got so many good things here for my article. Is there anything else we didn't touch on in some of your research or some of the latest things that you're seeing that are important? Oh, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> How long have we got? No, I mean one thing that's kind of got me curious at the moment. It links back to your earlier question about the the sort of Savannah hypothesis. Is how I see so many chefs. There's sort of a notion here that, that um, the biophilia hypothesis, the more green and blues of nature that we see around us, the better we are, the longer we live, the less stressed we are, the better we can think. All good. But I guess nature comes to us really through all of the senses. And I see the chefs who are choosing to bring soundscapes, nature soundscapes into the restaurant. They're all choosing to kind of simulate the sounds of the forest, the sounds mm-hmm. of the water, the sounds of the sea. And are they somehow going to be triggering the auditory nature effect Maybe you don't need the colours there. You just have the sounds of the thing through to then maybe thinking, well, is aromatherapy, is that kind of like an olfactory nature effect? Mm -hmm. Is that why it works? We're sort of taking you back to nature. And what did that Savannah um, smell like? Uh, And are those the smells that today are drawn to? (laughs) And just from one of the most striking things, I think, that came out of my research for the last book on, on sense hacking was study of people's homes across the US, right now, all the states or many of the states, just looking at their um, air conditioning and humidity in their homes. 
and finding you know all the way from Alaska to Texas. I'm not sure that's quite the hottest or coldest, but no, that's pretty good. Ends, <laughs> yeah, that everyone set their homes to a temperature and humidity level that when you looked across all the world's climates, most closely matched that of the Ethiopian highlands where we evolved. Fascinating. So we yeah. are drawn back to this you know, evolutionary earlier environment, both its sights, then definitely its temperature, its humidity, but then also perhaps its sounds and, and smells too. I think sometimes we so overlook those kind of early inner beginnings and that they're still inside of us. I always laugh because I have my little dog who's sitting next to me. Oh, I saw him. I saw him there. He yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, she's never been trained to bring her paw up when she sees a bird. But when we're out walking, all of a sudden, you know, she's pointing at that bird. And it's like, where did that come from? Well, came from those ancient genes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has just been a fascinating conversation. I can't thank you enough. And I, I know you're you're off to join your dad. I wanted to let you know I, my roots and my ancestry is is in Britain and the British Isles. And I write a blog called The Snug Home. So everybody in the U.S. says, what does snug mean? And I said, well, if you talk to anybody in Britain, they know what a snug is. <laughs> so, so I hope you're off to the pub and off to the snug. And snug. I just really, really appreciate your time to share with us today all of this wonderful research. It's just fascinating. Well, it's a pleasure. I don't know about you, but I'm so fascinated by what Professor Spence just shared with us. I really could have talked to him for hours upon hours, but I needed to make sure that we kept that, you know, within a small window. But his work is just fascinating to me. And in fact, he's inspired me. Maybe we'll even put together a playlist for Thanksgiving menu that we'll share on the episode guide page. But now let's turn to Well Home Design News. And I tease this up front with one of the biggest trends, of course, in 2023 home design and this is both home building you know design but also home interior design is of course wellness and one of the words i keep seeing a lot and i feel kind of like maybe we started a little trend here is me time now it's not something i coined by any means i kind of co-opted it myself but our whole me time monday concept has been going on now for 10 years it's been a decade and i think it's finally starting to take hold because i'm seeing a lot of articles that are being written in home design magazines and also talked about at some of the conventions and the home design expos and things that are out there that talk about finding areas of your home that provide that self-care me time place. Now, I wrote about reading nooks where you can take your book and kind of escape for a few moments how to create a kind of cozy reading nook in your home. It's kind of a similar concept. Finding a place which really speaks to your me time. It may be in the bathroom. It may be outside. It could be in a kind of, again, a cozy little nook where you curl up with a book and that's your me time or whatever it is. It's a little bit of, I would say it's a a mini-sized she shed or man cave, which were so trendy, you know, a few years ago. But those were kind of larger rooms that you would retrofit to really, you know, kind of speak to what you were what your interests were and, you know, how you could escape. This is just a little place within the home that you can find for yourself, find some quiet if you can. I know that during the holidays, it's really tough, particularly if we have family or friends who are visiting and maybe even staying with us, all of a sudden it's kind of like constant chaos, constant noise. How do you find some quiet time or whatever? So think about that. You know, if during the holidays, you know that for your emotional health, you're going to find, need to find a little place where you can just sit or whatever, start to plan ahead for that. But what I thought was really interesting is this one conference that I had gone to where they were talking about finding me time spaces and creating me time spaces in the home. How do you decorate for that? How do you design for that? It really was built around the five senses. And I talk so much about this in my upcoming book, Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness edit for a wonderful life. It's all built around neuroscience. And the five senses of, you know, sight, sound, smell, touch, taste are so essential to our emotional health. I don't think we recognize how powerful they are. It's something that intuitively, like inside, we probably know, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But then we kind of move on from that. And we don't really plan for, okay, if I'm going to find a place, you know, in my home 
where I can find a little me time. Does it have a view? Can I look out onto a beautiful vista? Like I'm looking at my window right now onto some beautiful green pine trees and some other beautiful bushes and, you know, the landscaping in my area here. So do you have a beautiful site that you can see? What about sounds? You know, is it an area where you can play a little bit of your music or maybe you just listen to nature sounds? Maybe you put your earbuds in and you listen to the nature sounds through the earbuds or whatever it is. That becomes a real big part of giving you this feeling of being enveloped in nature and in more of your me time. Aromatherapy, very, very powerful. You know, we know things like lavender help us to relax. We often talk about that spraying lavender spray onto your pillows and your sheets because it'll help you with sleep. Certainly lemon invigorates you. So if you're feeling kind of lethargic and it's just like, uh, you know, I've got so much to do, try a little lemon zest, you know, get a little bit of that scent into the air because it really does energize you. Clove, which is a scent, I think, of fall, that lowers anxiety and it actually creates more patience. You know, I was talking earlier about having empathy and having patience when we're talking to older loved ones. Well, maybe put some clove out or boil some lovely cloves and other scents of the season of autumn and fall on your stovetop, which always smells really good. But think about that. Also cinnamon, another scent of the season, although I love cinnamon all year round. It's like my favorite, favorite scent. And also my favorite thing, you know, to eat. I put it on everything, but that'll boost your mood. So it really does help with that serotonin, which is that hormone that really regulates our moods. So if you're feeling a little down, then, you know, get some cinnamon candle or something. What's also really great about cinnamon, it's a great disinfectant, by the way. So when you have cinnamon in your sprays or your countertops, or it's an antibacterial, antifungal, you'll find a lot of toothpaste will put cinnamon in there because again, it has that antibacterial component to it. So cinnamon is one of those really great scents to think about. Taste, you know, take a cue from Professor Spence and think about what music is going to be playing that might enhance the taste buds, maybe during your Thanksgiving meal or throughout the holidays. You know, what can you play to make things taste sweeter or tangier or savory or whatever it is? And then certainly touch, you know, when you're creating a space for yourself, the touch part becomes really important. It's that tactile feel. It's that softness of a a lovely, warm, cozy blanket. It's maybe your slippers on your feet. It's a heating pad or, you know, putting something around your neck or on your shoulders to ease that tension. But that tactile touch becomes really, really critical when you're trying to create these little spaces that are going to be about me time. So those are just some things to think about for the holidays. What can you create for you in your home? How do you create that kind of me time space? And that kind of leads us into, by the way, some of the things that are happening during the holidays, as we talked about, we're getting together with families and we want to find that me time, that wellness moment. And so our me time Monday wellness hacks are all about that. So for Thanksgiving, we're offering you our gratitude gravy recipe, which is really about how gratitude helps build our emotional health. So here we go with our me time Monday wellness hack on the gratitude gravy recipe. Welcome to the Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. This is for our Thanksgiving episode where we offer you our recipe for gratitude gravy. What is gratitude gravy recipe? Well, when we think of gravy, we think of a warm, savory sauce that tastes good on anything, biscuits, potatoes, meats, veggies, noodles, you name it. We also think of family since gravy is typically associated with the Thanksgiving holiday and the flavors of this season, which mean coming home. Our gratitude gravy recipe is similar to the gravy you eat. It is made from the simplest of ingredients, your thoughts and emotions that are mixed and enjoyed to provide feelings of comfort and satisfaction that linger for minutes, hours, days, or weeks. So take, first of all, your positive emotions and thoughts that express thankfulness, mix them with three deep breaths once a day, and after four weeks, Gratitude will grow and linger for positive health benefits for another 12 weeks. It serves one caregiver with better wellness. We also know that finding gratitude is not about things. It is mostly about people or more precisely, it's about our relationships. Our caregiving relationships are like roads, sometimes long, sometimes bumpy, sometimes wet with tears, sometimes sunny with smiles, but often meandering and confusing with no clear roadmap. 
Yet we continue to travel this road and learn new things that can bring us joyful memories. In the science of health and wellness, we know gratitude is a type of superfood for the soul. Being grateful and practicing gratitude has shown to be our social glue. It keeps us kind, it makes us empathetic and optimistic, and it amplifies the good in life. It rescues us from toxic feelings and strengthens our bonds with family, friends, and those we love. Studies have shown that gratitude practiced every day, even for one minute, can lower blood pressure, improve our sleep, lessen our aches and pains, and give us the incentive we need to choose healthier behaviors. And the great thing is gratitude grows over time. Just as the rings of a tree accumulate to tell the tree's age and make it stronger, gratitude grows over time to make your caregiving journey easier and your emotional health stronger. The source of gratitude does not have to be another person. It can be faith, nature, art, a sense of spirituality. You may want to write your gratitude thoughts in a journal or just remind yourself to be thankful for someone or something when you awake or when you go to sleep. And while gratitude is very personalized to you, if you practice gratefulness daily for four weeks, as I said, it continues to provide positive health benefits for the next 12 weeks. On our podcast episode page, we bring you the Emmons McCullough Gratitude Scale. It's a self-test to see how grateful you are. These leading experts in gratitude science offer the following tips to get an attitude of gratitude. Number one, don't just list things or people you are grateful for. Give details and explain how you feel. Number two, blend gratitude about things such as good health with gratitude for people such as the loved one you care for and the quality time you spend together or the stories you've learned. Number three, Focus on positive feelings and outcomes. Don't allow those negative or frustrating thoughts to intrude on your exercise. And number four, savor surprises. Write about what has brought you joy, not just happy moments, but a joyful life, and especially things you did not plan or expect. Is there a silver lining even in tough times? We are what we let in and what we give out. That defines us. We cannot control the world, but we can control our reaction to it. Yes, rain will fall, but a rainbow will follow. Make this caregiving journey a gift you give yourself, the gift of gratitude, it will keep you going. We hope you enjoyed this Me Time Monday wellness hack. Each episode of our Caregiving Club on-air podcast features a new Me Time Monday wellness hack and check out more great wellness articles on our website for my upcoming book, Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness edit for a wonderful life. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving Club on Air. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, and other listening channels. Check out all the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com. Just click the podcast tab at the top, and you can email us with questions or comments at podcast at caregivingclub.com. I'm Sherry Selling, and I wish you all to take care and stay well, and happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.